0: welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm here with my partner, Larry Mishkin, from the Hoban Law Group.
1: Hey everyone, great to be here uh, with Jim Marty from Bridge West. As always, uh, anytime I can make it out to the barn to tape a show, I'm happy to do it. Good vibes, good energy, and a lot of fun.
0: So it's just a beautiful day
1: here in Colorado,
0: just blue sky and trees just starting to turn and about 80 degrees, just perfect here. But we got lots to talk about. Larry, what do you got on your list?
1: Well, one of the things I know we want to mention is the new box set that's coming out uh, going to be released any day now, I think, by the Dead. I'm not sure what the actual drop date is. Once again, they've they've gone out and they've chosen a series of shows. This time, interestingly, they've picked a series of Dead shows over a six-year span, 2 in 87, 2 in 89, and 2 in 91, all from Giant Stadium. Everything I've seen and heard about them suggests they're great. I know that on the Serious Dead station, they've been dropping some of the songs from time to time, and... Online, you can listen to a few of them. do you ever see them in Giant Stadium, Jim? I did not, but I'm looking forward to
0: the, uh, the video disc, the Blu-ray video disc that comes with it, the box set. So that'll be a, a nice uh, to watch that and do a couch tour. But no, I never got to Giant Stadium for a show. But they said that the Grateful Dead had a way of making that venue just very intimate, even though it was a you know, 60,000, 80,000-person stadium.
1: Well, that's what I heard. I never made it to, uh, to Giant Stadium either for a show it's a lot of people out there this big big place but yeah and and they had the ability to do that i saw them in large enough stadiums, soldier field and rfk stadium in washington dc you know and and some really really large venues and you know somehow they had the ability even when you're a large venue like that to really make it feel like you were kind of in a much more intimate setting yeah some nights not of course but Mm -hmm. many many nights yes Uh so what else we got well i'll tell you um We've been talking over the past couple of shows uh, about the the vape crisis, which uh, still has not yet been uh, completely resolved. Um, We've spoken quite a bit about it, and uh, I don't know that there's so much new news for us to go over it again, other than to acknowledge that it does remain a problem, and uh, it's incumbent upon everyone, the government, the industry, uh, and people to really take the steps they can take to help identify counterfeit products and to – use the legal products and the products that are produced uh and have been inspected and tested uh that is important as a matter of public safety regardless of what type of product it is that you're you're actually vaping with
0: yes so as we said last time it's a wait and see so still no breaking news on that front in the last since our last show
1: however north of the border uh this last week or two we've seen some real developments happening up there and this is interesting because a company called canna trust uh, which is probably one of the largest cannabis companies operating in canada right now in the adult use market recently had its license suspended by the canadian federal authorities they were going to go in and seize product they were going to seize records they were going to seize money and and a whole bunch of things and it, it, it's really kind of interesting to me for two reasons one because anytime you see a such a large player get the really what's the ultimate punishment for anybody in the cannabis uh, industry if you get your license revoked or suspended you've been put out of business so so nothing else matters and at the end of the day what i what i found surprising was nowhere did they completely specify what the particular acts were on canada trust's behalf that led to this but in the notice of steps that canada trust had to take in order to correct the problems Uh, They include things like ensuring that cannabis is produced and distributed only as allowed by law, that they have to take steps to recover uh, any cannabis that may have been distributed that was not authorized by law, and they have to, actions to impose compliance with law, with the law and the regulations among their key personnel.
0: Well, that's really um, very interesting. I wouldn't want to make a comment on one particular company, but it does show the importance of how this industry has to mature in their corporate governance They have to act like real companies with internal controls and SOPs, standing operating procedures, producing their financial statements and tax returns timely. You know, at Bridge West, that's a real challenge for us. A lot of these people in this industry do not come from a corporate background, and their books and records, quite frankly, are a lot of times a mess. So we have to deal with that on an everyday basis. But it is, as I said, a sign of maturity that that is the direction we need to go. The industry really needs to mature.
1: Right. And one of the things I want to emphasize in, in talking about this is neither I nor Jim are in any way passing judgment on Trust. It's important to note that as part of the Canadian process, Cantatrust has an opportunity uh, to file responses uh, addressing the issues raised by the government and, uh, and defending themselves against those charges. And there have not been final rulings made. Uh, to me, the interesting part was, though, uh, that the government was even willing to put such a major company in that type of position. I think that what it tells us is that the Canadian government is very, very serious. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that tells us, and, and maybe this was one of the things they wanted to do, is there's no better way to send a message to some of the smaller players in the industry by letting them know that even you know even the big guys are not going to be beyond the reach of the government if it believes that there's some basis to issue the type of uh, notice that the Canadian government did in this instance. And that's the part that I think is really important. If you really want to win over the public, you know, you have to let them know that no matter how big you are, no matter how small you are, everyone has to play by the rules if you want to be have the privilege of cultivating, processing and selling marijuana.
0: Yes, I know what you're saying. And do you know if they had any US operations?
1: I, I'm not familiar with that, but I can tell you that the value of the stock dropped over 87 uh, percent over this period of time you know that's another thing obviously in the cannabis industry is more and more of these companies go out and take on public investors mm-hmm. the public investors expect the companies obviously to operate within the rules and within the law and to avoid a situation where anything might happen that might reduce the value of their interest again i want to emphasize i'm not suggesting that Canada trust has done anything wrong here. And it may very well be that they're exonerated, and and the price of the stock uh, goes back to where it should. But even in that case, then what we see is the government having the ability to step in and interfere with the financial resources of companies, because simply by making the allegation, that's enough to trigger a, a negative response in the market.
0: Oh yes, yes. Um, the industry is full of risk. I would say any company that's in the cannabis business, especially if you're what we call a touch the plant company, where you actually have a license to grow and sell marijuana very high risk uh, so many things can go wrong at um so many different levels just from your cultivation through your accounting system through your employees stealing from you which can cost you your license to sting operations by the med sending in somebody a few hours before they turn 21 anyway yes it's a very high risk business and we deal with that every day at the same time it's a product that people uh, millions and millions of people love this product
1: Right. So, okay. And they have to know that it's safe and, and which is so important for public trust. But likewise, I think it's important. You know, the people we don't talk about are the people that do follow the rules. If you follow the rules, nobody really pays attention to you. But like, any, you know, if you're going to follow the rules, uh, the thing that motivates you to do so is so that you don't run into a situation where the government might step in. And I think it's reaffirming for them to know that as long as they're following the rules, you know, that's good. People who don't follow the rules, there is a penalty to pay. In other words, Mm -hmm. it's worthwhile It's worthwhile to do that. That's a great example, I think, of federal government getting involved. Obviously, we don't have the opportunity yet in the United States for the federal government to play any kind of a role on that side of the coin, although they certainly are playing a role on the hemp CBD side, and we've touched upon that a little bit with the FDA making uh, their statement and their determination. Well, they, they haven't made a determination yet, as to whether or not CBD is a safe food additive, and it's resulted in a number of states taking the position that, uh, no, you can't sell it here. So in any event, the federal government of any country that has a program has to be mindful of the impact that their statements and their proclamations can have on the industry.
0: Well, and of course it's a very time-sensitive part of the year, major hemp harvest going on all around the country. My personal prediction is that not enough hemp will be grown. To meet demand in 2019 the harvest of 2019 Uh, but that crop will all be brought in over the next few weeks my understanding i'm not a scientist but i i learned so much from my clients that hemp can survive the first frost but not the second It's a very sturdy plant so you can actually leave it in the ground right up until about the time of your first frost or shortly thereafter so uh, but i don't think enough is grown people call us and they want to export hemp and cbd products all around the world and i'm saying where are you going to get the hemp oil it's you know there's that the demand for that just in the united states is probably going to eat up that crop and more
1: so we'll see yeah i think it's going to be very very interesting times on all fronts with that and you know if uh, we can emulate canada in terms of you know demonstrating uh, good compliance and good uh, regulation uh, i think that's everybody's benefit one other thing i want to say on a different topic it's coming out it's new and it speaks to some of the frustrations, I think, that the THC industry is still running into. We've spent a little bit of time on this program talking about Illinois' new adult use program and how it's it's kind of unfolding right now, and applications for the dispensaries are supposed to be dropping sometime within the next week or so. Applications for cultivation and processing are going to drop in January. Licenses is awarded in May. Uh, the current medical dispensary operators hopefully will have a good number of their entities up and running as adult use by the beginning of the year. But one of the things we talked about last time, Jim, or a couple of shows back, was some of the frustrations that were setting in because a number of communities in the Chicagoland area were opting out. Naperville, Highland Park, Wheaton, these are communities that have large populations in neighborhoods with people who have income levels that would suggest that they could support adult use and certainly the makeup of individuals who might very well support that industry. And in the case of Naperville and Highland Park, they actually already have medical dispensaries in those towns. So the, the the medical dispensary operators are actually being penalized because they can't open up their dual purpose or, or make their uh, current facility a dual purpose facility there like the other medical operators are because the community is saying no to the adult use side. Everyone thought that in the midst of all of this, the city of Chicago was safe and fertile ground. There have been a number of articles written about big groups interested in coming in and becoming the apple store of michigan avenue for cannabis um and and one or two groups have even had renderings drawn up and one was featured in a, a recent weekend article in the chicago tribune not too too far back and last week almost slipping by everybody's attention in the way that it was it was announced Illinois' new mayor Lori lightfoot who was certainly much more of a, a liberal and to the left in terms of her, uh, her political philosophy and someone who was widely seen as a fan of the cannabis industry, or certainly not an opponent of it, issued a set of rules for the city of Chicago that said they are opting out on any adult use dispensaries or facilities in the central business district, which is broad enough to include all of Michigan Avenue, the theater district, the shopping district, the business district in the loop, the areas in the West Loop where all the new nightclubs and restaurants have been built. And really those parts of town where you would expect tourists uh, or other people out for a night on the town who have the type of income to spend. It would be very simple to go in and, and buy whatever they wanted, uh, you know, perhaps for the evening or for whenever. But now, of course, that's being taken away from them without a whole lot of explanation as to why.
0: Well, based on the Colorado experience, those, those decisions are not always permanent. Take my own hometown of Walmart, Colorado. They did not initially allow adult, adult use, sure. and now they do. So I always say when people see what legal marijuana looks like, then pretty soon it's not in the paper anymore. You very hear, rarely hear marijuana discussed on the presidential debates or on the Trump side either, or the Democratic debates, they don't really talk, and the good, that's what I say, good, I don't want you talking about marijuana. Just let everybody alone and let people do what they want, and people do, as I said earlier, they love this product. The uh, dispensaries are very busy I and mean, you know, sometimes they'll see 60 people in an hour. So anyway, I don't know what we got, got me talking down that uh, t- tangent, but oh, we're talking about <coughs> Chicago. and being, Yes. Yeah. So it's not a permanent decision. Once pe- these neighborhoods look and see what legal marijuana looks like, the residents will vote in favor of allowing more access.
1: Well, you know, I certainly like to believe that's true. And I hope that's true. I think the frustrating are, you know, for me and for many of us in the industry, is that Illinois is not breaking new ground here. There are a number of states, Colorado, Washington, we know all of them, that have adult use, and in the case of Colorado and Washington, have had them for a long, long time. And you and I, Jim, have spent time on this show talking about the very positive impact that those laws have had, and just as much the minimal amount of negative impact that they've had. And these cities have established the statistical things for violence going down and DUIs going down and teenage smoking going down so communities are aware of this they they know what they're getting into they know that it's a money maker maybe it's just an overabundance of care and caution maybe it's you know trying to make their neighborhood not be one where you know many other people will come from outside of their neighborhood to come rushing in to buy marijuana products not really sure but You know, they they don't have any problem selling alcohol in those communities or in in the loop business area in Chicago. It's very frustrating.
0: Well, going back to the the Colorado experience, the cities that opted out, although they did participate in the general sales tax on marijuana, they did not participate on the uh, extra sales tax on adult use cannabis if they opted out. So there was a bit of a stick in there if they didn't want to have cannabis. And I think that's why some of these communities reconsider. Yeah. Again, my example of Longmont, Colorado had three of the major Colorado players just outside city limits. And I mean, you could kick a football and hit the dispensary from city limits right there. So like I said, people need to see what it looks like. They have to get used to it and, and just get used to it in a negative way. But get used to it and just as a normal part of your everyday commerce.
1: I think you're right about that. I think, you know, one of the unintended or who knows, maybe it was an intended consequence, though, is we have a number of operators that are all of a sudden scrambling. People who really were convinced that, you know, they they had the, the ability and the means to tackle those neighborhoods and really do it in a way I certainly think that would be proper and appropriate and, and, and not in any way that would cheapen the experience of being in those neighborhoods or walking down Michigan Avenue. I, you know, I think that they have the ability to pull that off very nicely. They're all scrambling. Now, where where are we going to put our flagship stores? Where are we going to, you know, even put our our second dispensary if we're being told that this entire area is off limits? And the same with Naperville and the same with Highland Park. And all of a sudden, uh, you're running out of, of communities that are of a size that, you know, an operator of an adult use dispensary would like to see before they decide to plant their store in that location. And it remains to be seen because nobody's sent in applications yet. They haven't even dropped. So nobody, we can't really tell what the overall impact will be on that in terms of where will people go to look. Will there be a concentration right along the border of this new no-smoke zone? Maybe. You know, there's some talk that some people won't go for their second adult use license until they see whether or not this restriction gets lifted soon.
0: When do Illinois adult use uh, applications
1: come up? So for the current medical license holders, they're in the process of submitting applications to make their medical facility a dual purpose and to get a second adult use facility, a dispensary facility. Sometime in the next week or two, we've been told that the applications for adult use dispensary licenses will drop and that they will then be due at the end of the year. The first or second week in January, the licenses for the adult use uh, craft grow cultivation and processing will drop and those will be due sometime by the end of March license is expected to be awarded uh in may really so no adult use january 1st oh no there is adult use january 1st but it's going to be the current medical current providers med- they, you know, and, and a number of them are already in the process of converting their current location into a dual use location and establishing their second location but i can tell you that for some of them who were thinking they were going to do it in that downtown area or in naperville or in highland park or in wheaton or some of these other communities it's a step back for them, and it does create a question as to how many of them will really be situated and open at, by January first.
0: Well, we talked about that earlier in the show about quantifying business risks. So this banning that we would call that political risk, very high, very unfortunate for those folks. On the other hand, you have a group that was had medical who are going to receive a huge, huge windfall. So the. When they say this business is marijuana industry is a wild, wild west, it really is. I mean, big fluctuations like that from getting boxed out on Michigan Avenue right. to having your medical facility that was barely breaking even now being in a position to service your 9.9 million, five million adults in Illinois.
1: Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how this all plays out. You know, but what it goes to show is that government on every level and every country gets involved. Sometimes for the better, sometimes in a way that may not seem for the better. But as you say, we'll, you know, certainly in the Chicago land area, we'll give it some time and we'll see how things work out and uh, whether down the road Mayor Lightfoot and the Cook County Board are willing to open up that area f- for the business.
0: Um, Very good. All right. Well, let's close it up with a little music talk.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we've been, you know, kind of going back and forth on for a while, but I think today's a great day to do it is to start talking about favorite shows that we've seen over the years. You know, there are favorite shows, so obviously it's very, very subjective. You know, some of you may have been at some of these shows and appreciate them as well. Some of you may have been there and thought they were bad shows. That's what makes it fun and gives us something to talk about. So, Jim, you know, to throw out Grateful Dead today, you know, what's one of your top five? Well, I guess
0: one of my favorite shows would have to be uh, Telluride, August 15th and 16th, 1987. It followed three days at Red Rocks. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and that Thursday show was the last Grateful Dead show ever played at Red Rocks. They just outgrew it. But then we had a day off on Friday to drive eight hours to Telluride, Saturday and Sunday, Grateful Dead in Town Park. And um, I had booked a condo very early on, so we had a great place to stay. And the warm-up band was Prince Una Tunja and his dancers and his drummers with eight foot high drums. They had to climb ladders to play the drums and the girls in grass skirts dancing and it was just a crazy scene they looked like they were african dancers but they actually turned out to be from baltimore because we met them in the hot tub later and got foot massages (laughs) so (laughs) yeah i
1: can't argue with that
0: mickey hart led a parade down main street they were selling them celebrating the harmonic convergence
1: oh yeah
0: and so there was big drum circles and like i said mickey hart was there right in the middle of it all and so great times
1: they shut down the town didn't they
0: well you couldn't really get in and out too well it was very difficult we got in there early enough and parking was very tight because it's a dead-end canyon there's only one way in and one way out of telluride unless you have a four-wheel jeep to go over the top of the mountains over to your ray but one of the special reasons i remember that show is because my wife was pregnant with our older son matt who is now 31 so I know exactly how long ago that show was.
1: Wow, very and cool. So yeah, Maureen took good
0: care of us, she cooked for us, well, we all had a great time.
1: Nice, that's great. That it, Listen, I, I never made it to tell right? I heard wonderful things about it and about that particular show. As long as I'm in Colorado, I think that it's hard always to narrow down what are my top five favorites. I've got many, I've, I've got a few that I can talk about. But being in Colorado, I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about June 14th, 1984 at Red Rocks. It was the third night of a three-night run. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and some other friends of ours from Ann Arbor all got in a car with no air conditioning and drove cross country in the middle of the summer to get to Red Rocks. And we got there and we camped out at the chief Hosted campgrounds for a couple of nights. And then there was a really bad rainstorm and hailstorm on the second night. And my wife's brand new uh, Ford Acura uh, Or Fort Taurus, rather, had the roof damaged and the back window blown out by all the hail, and we had to get it all changed. We still persevered and got up there. But all of that was window dressing for the next night. With the final night and it was a great night it was a beautiful beautiful evening no rain no nothing we had bumped into some old ann arbor friends who had provided us with some things that were truly enhancing the evening and get a lot of fun and they came out on fire opened up with a great ico and you know whenever they do that to me it always suggested jerry was in a kind of a playful mood and um you know really ready to have a fun night they burned right through their first set playing great tunes and in fact i don't often say this but they were playing so well that night That we didn't even mind the day job first set closing (laughs) and for those of you who don't know in one of the dead compendiums of songs they actually have this line where they talk about the notes of all the different songs and when they talk about day job they say that the band stopped playing the song at the request of the deadheads so you know i always thought Maybe it got a bad rap, but, you know, it certainly was not one of Jerry and, and Robert Hunter's better tunes. Is it going to keep your day job until your night job pays? Yeah. It's, That's not a terrible sign. No, not at all. But they did play it that night, but then they, they went into the second set, and it was one of those, you know, for all of you who've been to Grateful Dead shows, you know what it's like when you when you have a second set, just kind of takes off and goes off in directions that you never saw coming, and they came out. I should say, by the way, this was my 30th Grateful Dead show, so I was... Very excited to be there they came out the second set and they opened with shakedown street and you know there we were in the middle of red rocks and you know jerry booming and, and phil's bass guitar booming and you know they played it forever and then went into playing in the band which when you're in the right state of mind is the most beautiful bridge song to take you out there to wherever they're going to go but then came the highlight of the set in almost a forced manner brent started going off in some other direction none of us could figure out what he was doing And the next thing we know, he and Jerry are at the microphone singing Dear Mr. Fantasy. And the house went up for grabs. It was the first time they had ever played it. Um, You know, one of those tunes that you just never really thought uh, was going to be a possibility. And yet, you know, off they went and they did it. I believe Um, it had
0: the Hey Jude sequence in
1: the middle. It may have had the Hey Jude sequence in the middle as well. I was Uh, at that show. Yeah, they they, I'm uh, I'm quite sure it was just tremendous. You know, completely unexpected. A song we all knew. And never expected to hear it in that context, and then they did it great. They, they came back out of the drums, back into playing, and I think there was a Black Peter, and then they did the you know Throwing Stones not fade away, which as we may have talked about, the only reason I started to get frustrated with that was because it became too predictable. You know, if they would have thrown it into the middle of a set where it didn't automatically signify the end of the show, but again on this night they were they were just so hot that we were happy to have them play it. They played it great. And then, of course, the uh, the funny part of the night was uh, it was June 14th. So Bobby comes out and gives a little speech about how 150 or 200 years ago, whenever it was, US, U.S. Congress declared the Stars and Stripes to be the flag in the United States of America. So for all of you who were here the first night when they played U.S. Blues, we're really sorry, and they launched the U.S. Blues uh, for the second time in three nights. Um, but they killed it. They played it great. And it was one of those shows where you didn't want to leave Red Rocks. And at the end of the night the people were coming around very politely and saying you really have to go now right and just nobody wanted to walk out of that place it was just it was a it was a it was a magical night it was certainly one of the best shows i ever saw excellent so well that's a good start for us on that uh we have the, the good news is we have many many more shows to talk about lots of other great topics to talk about i'm gonna have to figure out when i can back, get, get back out here to the barn again but just again, really quickly, thank you to our whole uh, staff and crew and everybody who's working with us. Dan Humiston, the wonderful producer, who's still on the mend from some surgery, but like a trooper, is, is out there taping. Alston Puchik, who uh, has come out from the Hogan Law Group and uh, is helping us today with all the video work. And Jim, all of the hospitality, you know, for letting us use the barn. I can't thank you enough.